Welcome to Health or Consequences. This is Paul Hannes, retiring this summer from the Tufts University School of Medicine after a number of years. But I'm here with my co-host colleague, John McDonough, still very much engaged in his work at the T.H. Chan Harvard School of Public Health. And we're intrigued by having with us today as our guest, uh, Dr. Joya Mukherjee, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Partners in Health, also an Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School and at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Mukherjee. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. John, I think you're going to get us going today. So, Dr. Mukherjee, thanks for joining us and welcome. Could you tell us and our audience a little bit about your background and your role as mm -hmm. Chief Medical Officer at Partners in Health and also for folks who aren't familiar what does Partners in Health do in the U.S. and around the world? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, yeah, um, my name is Joya Mukherjee. I'm a physician. I was trained in, in internal medicine, pediatrics, and infectious disease uh, right here in Boston at the Mass General uh, in the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And as I was in medical school and residency, was really the burgeoning of the AIDS epidemic, and I got very interested in HIV, um, and also other infectious diseases that had a predilection for the poor, tuberculosis, leprosy, uh, problems like that. And um, I worked in Africa for a couple of years, and just as I was returning, which was in 95, 96, the cocktail was discovered, the triple therapy that, you know, turned AIDS from a fatal disease to a treatable one. And it seemed that as we knew the African continent was so heavily hit that, of course, we would take that miracle uh, treatment to the 95% of the, uh, those living with the disease, but that didn't happen not 95, 96, 97, 98, not until the early 2000s. And in those years, um, 8,000 people died every day of untreated HIV and the majority were on the African continent. So I um, joined Partners in Health in 1999 uh, because it was the only organization that was trying to treat people who were poor and from the Global South with HIV. And of course, that was a, a group founded by Jim Kim, Paul Farmer, Ophelia Dahl. And we were treating just a handful of patients in Haiti with HIV drugs. And Partners in Health at that time was quite small. We had a small program in Peru um, and the work in Haiti. But because we were among the first organizations that was treating people for HIV, we became part of the much larger movement for not only HIV treatment access, but global health and actually the provision of healthcare. Uh, prior to the turn of the 21st century, most of healthcare was real in the global south was just prevention, vaccination, vitamin A, et cetera. Um, and it was really the AIDS movement that started to change that. And a lot of the work that's being done now that's under the rubric of health system strengthening and things was really led by that movement for AIDS treatment access. My dog wants to go out. I'll let him out in a second. Um, and so that, you know, today, Partners in Health, through being part of that 
movement, being invited by countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere in the world to help scale up AIDS treatment, tuberculosis, but most importantly, the right to health and the strengthening of the public provision of health and the community engagement, we're now in 11 countries around the world, five in sub-Saharan Africa, um, and all at the invitation of governments and communities of affected people. And we have 17,000 people on our staff and all but 100 are local nationals. So Rwandans working in Rwanda, Haitians working in Haiti, etc. And even our expat core of uh, experts that go and help set up projects are often people from other countries in the global south. So we have Haitian leadership in many African countries. Our pharmacy expert is Rwandan. And so we're very proud of the global nature of not only our work, but who does the work and who we consider having expertise. So I've been the chief medical officer of Partners in Health for 20 years um, and have been, you know, through this uh, many pandemics, cholera, HIV, tuberculosis, Ebola, uh, and we were invited into West Africa to fight Ebola, similarly because the, the government understood that we wouldn't just focus on Ebola, we would actually help to strengthen the health system. Um, and so what we learned from, from that proximity is that any epidemic threat is a, a bigger threat to the poor. And so we were preparing our uh, organization for COVID in February. And Jim Kim, who's one of our founders said, you know, why aren't we doing this level of preparation in the United States, testing, contact tracing, et cetera. And we said, well, we haven't been asked. And so then Governor Baker asked us to help the Department of Health, Public Health to stand up contact tracing. And so now that's the work we're doing in the United States. Uh, so thanks for that. That's, uh, that's very helpful. I'd like to talk a little bit about Ebola and, and West Africa, uh, sure. because you, you really pioneered a new form of contact tracing in that environment. And part of your work here now in Massachusetts evolved mm -hmm. from the experience there. What did you learn about contact tracing and our current crisis um, uh, from the experience there a few years ago? What, what, are you, what are you able to bring from that that helps us here in Massachusetts and around the country? Yeah. So let me say humbly that we didn't pioneer contact tracing as um, you know and others you know contact tracing is as old as the field of public health itself. It goes back to the time of Jon Snow. Um, in terms of how you track epidemics and how you control them. And so we were working with many partners in Liberia and Sierra Leone to do contact tracing. I think the thing that we have been most vocal about and we're most passionate about is that contact tracing has to be linked to care. That people don't really wanna know their status. Uh, they don't really care about the information if they're not gonna get treatment. We saw this in HIV, we saw this in Ebola. So when we were seeing people put in holding centers for Ebola and there was no real treatment there, they were just very in, uninterested and in fact afraid to go. So the treatment aspect is there. And then the broader view of what care is. We're in this climate of social distancing, 
um, it is very economically regressive. You can see, you can see, but your listeners can't see. I'm sitting in a beautiful sunroom with plants. I'm a privileged person. It's easy for me to social distance, but for the essential worker, the hourly worker, the people who have to put daily, get out of their house to put food on the table, they cannot use the messages of stay at home because they can't stay at home. It's not that they're ignorant, it's they don't have the material resources. So what I think we are constantly faced with at Partners in Health and the ethos that we've tried to bring to Massachusetts as well as around the country is that you have to link knowing your status as a contact, getting the right information with the material resources that you need to quarantine. So we have created a cadre we're calling the resource care coordinator. So a contact tracer will call somebody and say, you know, you have been a contact. These are the things you need to do. And then the key question is, can you, can you do that? Do you have the physical space? Do you have money? Do you have food? And fully 11 or 12% of people in Massachusetts, right? The richest state, uh, in the richest country and uh, in the world say, no, I can't. I need infant formula. I need diapers. I need groceries. I don't have a safe place to live. So trying to then connect people with the right resources. And that's why we see this massive inequity uh, in the COVID, who gets COVID, who gets sick, who dies of COVID. And we see that in every epidemic and we saw that in Ebola as well. Yes, I, I wonder just for our, some of our listeners who don't really fully understand the process, and I know you have three different kinds of workers, maybe yeah. you can take us through ever since April when, when you were part of the community tracing collaborative that Governor Baker asked your organization to do, how, how does the process work? How do you get knowledge about a case and follow it up? How do you interact with state or local health departments? Take us through a minute of that if yeah. you want. So epidemic diseases are always controlled and managed within departments of public health anywhere in the world. And those are often quite localized and public health law is done by the states and even local laws. And so we are fortunate in Massachusetts to have um, a, a kind of database called MAVEN, which is the Massachusetts Viral Epidemiologic Network. Um, and that uh, was developed for this, just this kind of thing, for mapping outbreaks. And so our Department of Public Health in the state is world-class. They are leaders in many areas. And so they were doing already the function of case investigation. So you're a new case, you get diagnosed as positive for COVID, then someone will call you or come visit you um, it's Is that usually done at the local, sorry, the local health department level? The local health departments okay. would call you and say, um, you're, you have COVID. You may already know that from your clinician, your nurse practitioner or physician, but the health department call and they do an investigation, which is open up your calendar and let's see who you have been within six feet of for the last, since you've developed symptoms and a little bit before. That's normal. It depends on whatever the case defin definition is. So obviously, if somebody, if, if you're investigating an outbreak of food poisoning, you might say, where did you eat? But in the case of COVID, the case definition of a contact is six feet for more than 15 minutes. So walking through the calendar. And that's why social distancing is important because right now, 
the number of people who fit that case definition are a lot smaller than they were when we're all at work every day, right? And so walking through that, enumerating those contacts, writing their names, their phone numbers, getting the information, and then the contact tracing starts where you call each and every person who is a contact who meets that case definition and you say, you are a contact. How are you feeling, first of all? Do you need to get a test? Do you need to see a clinician? Second, these are the things you need to know now to keep yourself and your family safe because we know that COVID is mostly spread in households and by very close contacts. So the information is important for people to not infect other people in their family. And then third is this question, can you do that? Is it even possible for you to quarantine or isolate? And so that's the process. Public health departments do case investigation. They also do contact tracing. Mm -hmm. They may even try to connect people with resources. The difference with COVID is the tsunami of cases that we were facing in Massachusetts that are being faced now around the country and around the world where we stepped in to really support the Department of Public Health to do that. Okay, so you, you stepped in in April and I know you guys took responsibility of, of fully operationalizing in May. You had a thousand or so, or maybe even more workers. 1900. But right, but the governor announced yesterday that uh, there's a need to cut back on all yeah. those folks, I assume because the caseloads now are small. Tell, yeah. tell, tell us where you're at. In terms of so numbers. you know now we we were at our peak we were at about 1,900 um, people getting paid um, and and you know we inform people from the beginning that our job is to take care of this surge uh, and the better we do the shorter this period will be where we have 1,900 people working on this uh, so now we have about 470 um, so you know and uh, many so like, people. Oh. 1,500 yeah. folks have, have exited the, your, yeah. your staff, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And we think that will allow us to continue to handle properly uh, 300 new cases a day in addition to what the local boards of health uh, are, are handling. Okay. okay. So Dr. Mukherjee, we, we read reports that contact tracing is having only mixed success around the country as opposed to what seems to be happening here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Are we doing something qualitatively different here than what's going on elsewhere around the country? And do you have any assessment? Because obviously there's such a stark difference now between Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and so many other parts of the rest yeah. of the country. What do you see going on from a national perspective, particularly regarding contact tracing? Well, you know, I think that Governor Baker was really quite visionary in saying we've got to bring this to scale immediately. Like there's not a minute to waste, you know, because every time someone is sick, they're infecting others. It is a highly infectious virus. And so um, if you don't have enough people, and I think what, we're, what we found is if you don't work on the machinery of getting the cases, calling the, doing the investigating, calling the contacts, and compress that time frame to a day, you, you can't stop it. So I think what we're seeing is, and you know, we're now, we uh, were able to get some philanthropic money to help other cities and states. We're helping the city of Newark, the state of Illinois, et cetera. And what we see around the country is 
this is going on, but like in fits and starts. So they have, you know, oh, well, we're doing it in the local boards of health, but they're not getting everyone or they're doing it. But the turnaround time for from a test to the tracing of contacts is six days. Mm -hmm. So these are not, you know, the, the public health metrics really need to be looked at to control epidemics, right? Because if we, if it's turnaround time of six days before you call the contacts, those people have spread it to other people already. So what I, what I think is different about Massachusetts, um, and I'm not as familiar, like I haven't looked deeply at what's happening in New York, but we have really focused with our local boards of health colleagues, the Department of Public Health, on getting that turnaround time from the time of a test to the time of contact, invest, case investigation, contact tracing, and connecting people with resources. And we try to compress that into a 24-hour period right. and really get people to answer the phone and do a lot of mass communication. We have a 90% pickup rate. The majority, that's 90% of people saying, okay, yep, I hear you. So I think all of that work is what makes it effective. But, you know, this thing is like whack-a-mole. So if you do really well here, but not over here, then it's going to pop up there. And I think we're the only state, as far as I can see, that have done this at scale with these kind of public health metrics. Let me ask you about international comparison for a moment, because countries like Taiwan, South Korea, Germany you know, are highlighted as really being able to keep their case growth low and they all use forms of contact tracing. Uh, how are we doing things similar or different from them, uh, whether yep. it's on the tracing side or the quarantine side? Uh, yep. Tell us a little bit. And, and by the way, Rwanda, right? Okay. And by the way, Liberia. I mean, there are poor countries also that are doing far better. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the, the public health metrics, the urgency of looking at the time frame. Um, really takes an inordinate amount of political will. And we, early on, uh, through connections with um, Dr. Jim Kim, we were able to talk to the Korean CDC. And I mean, they pulled out every stop to, to shorten that time frame from doing things that we probably couldn't do in the United States, like you know, tracking people by their use of their credit cards and stuff like that. But they, But with a smaller workforce, and more electronic systems, they did it. With Germany, they did it more kind of shoe leather, um, like we're doing it, but, but it was really the leadership, I think. And again, I think Governor Baker has been a leader. I mean, he said, you know, and a lot of people objected and then in the medical community, um, even here in Massachusetts, a lot of people said, oh, it's not worth it. Um, but he said, look, this is one of the things just as he, was trying to get PPE for the hospitals, right? Just as he was trying to negotiate testing contracts, he was also saying about prevention. And I think, you know, what I have learned in 25 years of epidemic control is you only can do it with a comprehensive approach, prevention, treatment, care. If you just do one thing, it's not gonna work. And I think so many places are just kind of waiting for the surge of sick patients, which we know is only about 20% of the epidemic. So you're doing, if you're just waiting and focusing on the hospitals, which was what the United States did early on, early on you've got 80% of the rest of people with mildly symptom, mild symptoms or pre-symptomatic um, who are just spreading infection. Mm -hmm. 
So a large share of the cases in Massachusetts and around the country and, and in other countries as well is coming from nursing homes, yeah. congregate living facilities, yeah. prisons, correctional facilities. Does contract, contact tracing play any role in that? And what do you think about the situation in terms of these facilities and the role that they play in, try, in trying to avoid the spread of the virus? Yeah, no, that's a great question because that really also impacts how we think about reopening schools and universities, you know, um, here in the Commonwealth. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people who say, oh, it's too late to do contact tracing. Like, it, it, probably true if, well, only true if everybody has gotten infected already, right? So uh, from our standpoint, every life is worth saving. And imagine if the nursing home, like if take a step back, let's say you're a community that hasn't had a single um, case of COVID in a nursing home, what would you wanna do? You would wanna be testing your employees, testing visitors, restricting. And if any one person, uh, you know, a visitor, an, a nurse, got sick, you would want to make sure, okay, let's check all the people they've been in contact with. So, I mean, I think that, and, and then do the right thing, you know, separate people, move people. So I, I feel like there's, there is prevention, like with a capital P, and then there's also harm reduction. There's ways that we can minimize the spread, even within congregate areas, if we understand who's infected, but there was almost like the throw in the towel, well, everybody's gonna be infected anyway, so we might as well not try to map it. So I think, I think it's important as we think about reopening to think about how are we gonna screen people? How are we gonna test their contacts? Um, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, imagine if there's a kid who's gonna show up to school and they're sick and they're diagnosed with COVID, um, and, you know, their little siblings also have COVID, but you don't do the contact tracing. It would make sense, right? So I think this kind of work is just going to be critical. And I, I honestly don't know why I'm baffled by the, 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 the sentiment against contact tracing among very smart academics, because it is just based in logic. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not... I would want to know, uh, and and you know, my mom lives with me. I would want to protect my mom, right? I I I just, it's it's just baffling to me why people are against contact tracing. Dr. Mukherjee, quick quick question: If if one of you, if your people got referred a case where somebody's got infected, said I was at a protest rally a week ago, what would you yep. ask that individual? Well, I mean, it would be the same thing, right? Because first of all, as an infectious disease doctor, one thing I always say I teach is epidemics are local, right? So I've been to some of the protests. Um, it's not like you were with every single person at the protest, right? Who did you go with? Who did you stand with? Did you drive in a car with somebody? Did you take public transportation? I mean, it's really, again, it's six feet. Right. So so would, there like, would be those kinds of follow-up questions yeah, for somebody yeah, who, who yeah, attended. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. People don't usually go totally on their own. They might go with a friend. They might go with a group. So, yeah. Uh, there was a New Yorker article that noted that 
you guys were ultimately reaching between the number of cases and then how many contacts they gave you and then your ability to reach those, somewhere around 40 to 50 percent of the total N. Um, is that accurate and is that adequate from your perspective? For the I mean, we, that was the initial, um, you know, when we started, we were getting through to about 40 to 50 percent and we worked on it a lot and got it up to 90 percent. And how did we do that? A variety of different things. Um, we did community-based town halls. So looking at different communities, particularly vulnerable ones, doing those town halls in Spanish and Haitian Creole and Portuguese, Vietnamese, um, that, you know, that was one thing. We had to work with the telecom companies, AT&T, T-Mobile and others, to waive the caller ID fee so that people would see it was mass COVID. We had to work on getting a two-way calling. So if people wanted to call back a number, they could do that. We had to have a texting function. So, and this is the work that Partners in Health has done for, you know, almost, almost four decades, right? is this iterative process. Yeah, when we started, it was only about half and that isn't good enough. And I think that's part of the problem we see in the country is we've got to hold ourselves to a much higher standard. And then iteratively, we were able to bring that up to 90%. Okay. You noted how in South Korea that they use some technology to support their efforts. Anything you want to say about your own use of that or the idea around it, you know, including people downloading apps, which tell them that they cross paths with somebody who was infected. And I think they get the information anonymously, mm -hmm. but there could be some follow up on their part or, mm -hmm. or want to talk a little bit about that, if you would. Sure. I mean, you know, we are at Partners in Health, we are super pro technology. Uh, we have used a variety of apps and other things to fight Ebola um you know to look at some of the you know cholera vaccine stuff in haiti so you know i think the use of technology should help us i i would say though there are two key caveats there one is that this is a very stressful time and our contact tracers have told us and our community resource you know our care resource coordinators that that human connection is critical and even many of the patients have said that, you know, many of the people were contacted. And so I don't think any app can substitute for the human touch and they should be additive. Um, and then the second caveat is we have to assure that privacy is protected. And that's true of phone calls as well. And that's why the Department of Public Health really needs to be in the lead, not like a company or something, because there are rules and regulations on public health data. And so I think we are really excited to see how apps and other technology tools, we have used just call center software through Salesforce and with the group Accenture, and it's been good. Um, but again, not replacing the human connection and assuring privacy. So um, as, we, as we tape this on July 1st, uh, yesterday we had our first day in a, over three months with no fatalities in Massachusetts. Um, how concerned should we be that we will see a resurgence, uh, that we will let down our guard uh, that there will be a second wave. What are you 
foresee? What can you tell us about what your informed judgment is about what the future holds for us? Yeah, I mean, we are a country with open borders between states. There's very little monitoring. There is very little control in many, many, many states in the United States. And access to care is still very fragmented. And so I think in Massachusetts, we will see a second second wave. I mean, in some, in some states, we won't see a second wave because there's no end of the first wave, right? It's a mm -hmm. continuous tsunami. Um, and so what we are hoping, what we're, you know, working with people on is how do we maintain this force of contact tracing? How do we maintain the messaging about social distancing, mask wearing, all of these critical things? Um, understanding that there is circulating virus in our community. We're still at a couple hundred cases and we need to get to zero, right? And we need to get to zero across the country as they have in China. And then, you know, it'll pop up again, but then you have the, the system to put it back down, right? Um, but we haven't developed a system. And I, I mean, what's terrifying to me, having worked in many outbreaks and again, very poor countries is what I've seen as success is rooted in very strong leadership. We have that strong leadership from Governor Baker. We do not have that kind of leadership federally. And this can't only be a state to state thing, state by state, right? And I, you know, being in Liberia during Ebola or Sierra Leone, every day there is incident management, people reviewing the cases, contact tracers going out, even by helicopter if they needed to, to get to remote areas to stamp out, uh, you know, the, tra the community based transmission. I just don't see us doing anything like that on the federal level. And then just my, my last question to you, um, do you have any sense of how long we should expect before we will see a real vaccine that will be helpful? You know, um, I had a very brief stint when I was a fellow in an immunology lab in uh, the mid-90s and talking about an AIDS vaccine being 10 years away. And, you know, and that was almost 30 years ago. And so, you know, I know everybody's working on it. I don't think, what, what I don't think we understand yet from my very limited immunologic background is what are the correlates of immunity? You know, we see there was just a recent paper in Nature that showed that people who have milder symptoms have less antibody, which is paradoxical. So, Many people with these inflammatory illnesses that are happening in children think some of this is driven by a host response. So I personally don't see this vaccine right around the corner. And I think there's magical thinking on two levels. One is just the science, I don't think, is clear. But second is we have lousy structures for equity in the United States. And so we could have a vaccine tomorrow would it go to the people who need it most? Would it go to the people who work in meatpacking, the meatpacking industry? Would it go to incarcerated people? Would it go to nursing homes? No. And so I worry about the development, but also as we've seen over and over again, the distribution. And so I think we're gonna be living with this for quite some time. Okay, and thank you, Dr. Mukherjee. Paul? 
Yes, Dr. Mukherjee, those are uh, sobering thoughts. We, we appreciate you today. Uh, we had Dr. Mukherjee from um, Chief Medical Officer of Partners in Health. Uh, good luck with your efforts, Thank whether you. the caseloads are are thin or thick, we it's really want better. you to succeed in any way that you can. Thank you okay. for coming. Thank you so much. All right, bye-bye.